Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. We uh, are at the beginning of the chapter, and uh, we are just now getting to the identity of these 12 disciples that Jesus appointed as apostles, and their names are listed for us in verses 2 to 4. Let me read that text again. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Uh, it says in verse 1, which I didn't read, that he summoned his 12 disciples. A disciple is a learner, a student. Uh, and then in verse 2, it's, it calls them what? Apostles. That is, sent ones. Uh, they started out as learners, and they became sent ones after their training was over. And after his ascension and their indwelling by the Holy Spirit, they received divine revelation. Uh, Three of them are responsible for writing eight of the New Testament epistles. And it was their recollections and doctrines that were the basis for Mark, Luke, James, and Jude writing their New Testament books. Uh, So they are the ones who received the revelation. Uh, They're not only the ones who were the foundation in terms of leadership and authority. They are the source of revelation. They are the framers of orthodox theology. But it wasn't only that what they said that was important. It was who they were. Uh, They were the first set of examples, the first patterns for people to look to to see virtue. In Ephesians 3.5, it calls them his holy apostles. Uh, That's an important title. That's a term that indicates the virtue of their life. So they were the foundation, and it's essential, I think, for us to see how the Lord works with them and disciples them and trains them and then sends them out. And that's to be the pattern for us as we disciple others and send them out into the world. But frankly, these guys were just 12 ordinary men. Uh, So far as we know, none of them had any kind of academic background. Uh, None of them had any social status. They were just common people. But as you look at the list, there's some fascinating things to learn just about the list itself. Uh, There are actually four lists of the disciples in Scripture. Uh, The first one is here in Matthew 10. It's one in Mark 3, one in Luke 6, and one in Acts 1. And there's some interesting similarities. In all four lists, Peter is listed first, and when Judas is mentioned, he's always last. Uh, Why was Peter always listed first? Was he the first one chosen? No. Uh, John 1 makes it clear he wasn't the first one. But notice that phrase there. It says, the first Simon, who is called Peter. That word first uh, means first, uh, chief, principal, most important. Uh, in, In the context, it means foremost in rank. So Peter was the foremost apostle. He was the recognized leader of the pack. Uh, But he was equal to all of the other apostles, and they were all equal to him. He was their recognized leader. There's a second thing to notice about the list of these guys. In all four lists, there are three groups. 
Uh, the first group is Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Uh, the second group begins in verse 3, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. And then comes the third group, John, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. In every list that you examine in Scripture, each group is, always has the same four guys in it. Uh, they never get out of their group on all three lists. It's always the same four. Their names may be in a different order, uh, but they're always in the same group. Another interesting thing is that if you look at the calling of the twelve, you find that the first four were the first four who were called. Uh, and apparently the next four were the next ones called, and the last four were the last ones called. So you have these three groups of four. What's interesting is that we know quite a bit about the guys in the first group. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We know a little more about group two, Philip, Nathaniel, Thomas, and Matthew, but we don't know anything about group three except for Judas. Uh, there's another observation about the list. In each of the three groups, the names, as I said, can be listed in a different order, but the first name is always the first name in each group. Uh, so in every list, it's Peter in the first group, it's Second group is Philip. Third group is James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, some Bible scholars believe that that's an indication that even in the individual groups, there was one man who was the recognized leader of that group. So in organizational leadership functions, uh, there's one large group with one person who's a recognized leader, and then there are subgroups with a leader over each one of them. And that same kind of structure exists in almost every successful organization since then. So you have this group made up of 12 men with all kinds of political differences. As I pointed out before, you had Matthew who was a sellout to the Romans as a tax collector, and you had Simon the Zealot who was an assassin uh, looking to kill the Romans. And if he had, you know, if it hadn't been for Jesus and their love for him, Simon the Zealot would have stuck a knife in Matthew anytime he could. Uh, so you had these guys with all these political differences spiritual differences, emotional differences, and they're all in the same group here. In his excellent commentary on Matthew, Leon Morris writes, when Jesus chose his 12, he did not choose supermen. God does not need outstanding people to do his work. And it seems that while some of the 12 were very able men, others were very ordinary. Uh, so the Lord selected this mishmash of characters and used them to change the world. And the wonderful story is that apart from Judas, they didn't fail. Now let's begin with Simon Peter this morning, and we're going to spend more time on him than the others. Uh, after all, Peter was the leader of the twelve, and the first twelve chapters of Acts revolve around him. Uh, so the question is, how does God build a leader? He's the key figure. He preaches the sermon at Pentecost. He does the first great miracle at the temple. Uh, he faces down the Sanhedrin. He is the key. God is going to make a leader out of this man albeit a man who still had his failures. Uh, the first four Gospels are literally filled with Peter. Uh, I mean, he's every place. After Jesus, no other person is mentioned as often in the Gospels as Peter. Uh, no one speaks as often as Peter, and no one is spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter. Uh, no disciple is reproved as much by the Lord as Peter. Uh, the... Uh, uh, and no other disciple ever dared to reprove the Lord but Peter. Uh, no disciple ever so boldly confesses and so outspokenly acknowledges the Lordship of Christ, and no one denies it so boldly as Peter. Uh, 
he is a constant conundrum. Someone has described him as the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. Um, <laughs> no one is so praised and blessed as Peter, and no one else is called Satan but Peter. Uh, Jesus had harder things to say to Peter than he ever had to say to anyone else. But that would be a part of making him the man that he wanted him to be. So then how does God build a leader? This is very important. We need to know because the Lord is still building leaders in his church today. Uh, and how does he do that? Peter is really the key to understanding that. And how does God take such an inconsistent character, such a contradiction in human terms, and turn him into a leader? Well, I think there are several elements, but I want to focus on three of them. First of all, you have to have the right raw material. Uh, the Lord recognized in Peter the right raw material for leadership. Uh, Peter was the leader before anyone acknowledged it. I think he just sort of naturally took over. And that's the way he was. He had whatever it is that is the raw material, the raw stuff of leadership. Now, what is the raw material that you look for in a leader? Well, first of all, you might be surprised by this. Does he ask questions? People who don't ask questions don't wind up as leaders because they're not concerned about problems and solutions. Uh, if you want to find a leader, look for someone who asks questions. In the gospel record, Peter asked more questions than everybody else combined. Uh, it was Peter who asked the meaning of a difficult saying. In Matthew 15, 15, it's Peter who asked, uh, ex who says, explain the parable to us. Uh, some of the other guys are just standing there, absolutely didn't understand a thing, but they're just sort of rocking back and forth in their sandals, and they're not bothering to ask. Uh, but Peter can't handle that. He has to ask. Explain this to me. I've got to know. In Matthew 18, it's Peter who asked how often he had to forgive someone who had offended him. And by the way, in all of his questioning, he rarely got the answer he expected. It was Peter who, in Matthew 19, said, what's the reward of those who've left all to follow Jesus? Who's, who's, what's going to be our reward? Mm -hmm. And so he's asking questions, always questions. It was Peter who, in Mark 11, asked Jesus about the fig tree when it withered away. When Jesus spoke about end times in Mark 13, Peter was the one asking, when will these things take place and what signs do we look for? Uh, in John 21, after Peter was told he's going to die as a martyr, what does he do? He, uh, well, what about John? You know, the Lord's answer is, it's none of your business. It doesn't matter if he, if he lives till the second coming. He's always asking questions, but that's the raw material of which leadership is made. You see, leaders seek solutions. Leaders ask questions. And the Lord saw that in Peter. I know that when we are looking at men to consider to be an elder, a pastor in the church, we always want men who are asking questions. Not asking questions with an attitude that evidences a distrust of the existing leadership, but rather questions which evidence a desire to understand the thinking and direction of the church leadership. And those who ask good theological questions also. Uh, again, not the kind of questions that indicate that they're questioning the validity or accuracy or inspiration of Scripture, but rather questions which indicate a true desire to understand its meaning. 
A second element of the raw material of potential leadership that's important is initiative. Initiative. Leadership always takes initiative, and you see that with Peter. Most of the time, when Jesus asked a question, who was it that answered it? Peter. When the crowd was all around Jesus and the woman with the hemorrhage touched his garment and he asked, who touched me? It was Peter who answered. When Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? It's Peter who says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He's always taking the initiative. When Jesus was walking on the water and everyone else was scared to death, it was Peter who said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Uh, now that's initiative. That's another mark of potential leadership. A third thing you see in those who possess, who possess the raw material of leadership is they're always right in the middle of the action. Uh, they go through life with a cloud of dust sort of trailing behind them because they're always on the go. They create things. They build things. They start things. Peter was like that. I mentioned Peter was walking on the water to Jesus, and you might think, but he failed. He had a lack of faith, and he sank in the water. Remember, there were 11 other guys still in the boat, afraid to move. Uh, so before you get on Peter's case, realize where he was. Peter say, says, well, Peter denied the Lord three times. True. But where was he when he did that? He was in the courtyard of the high priest's house. He had the courage to go that far. Where were the other 11? They'd, they'd run away, except for John. John was there too. I mean, he's always in the middle of the action. He was always where it was going on. And when the resurrection came, who were the first ones there? Peter and John. He's standing at the tomb, in the tomb, looking at everything, trying to figure out what happened. And Jesus saw that raw leadership material in Peter, that inquisitive, that self-initiative, and the willingness to dive in to whatever the situation was and take action. Now, we know Jesus saw that in him because just consider his name. His given name was Simon, very common name. He was the son of Jonas or Jonah, John. Uh, he was a fisherman by trade. He lived with his brother Andrew in the village called Bethsaida. Later, they moved to Capernaum. Uh, archaeologists believe they've uncovered the place where his house was. I've been to that site once uh, there in the little village of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we know he was married because the Lord healed his mother-in-law. And based on Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 9, it's likely that after he began his apostolic ministry, he took his wife with him on various journeys. Uh, so he had a common name, a common trade, and a common marital status. But his personality, his nature, tended to be vacillating and unstable. He was very bold in his opinions and would proclaim them loudly, but then he would change and not follow through. And so I'm sure it was a surprise to all of the other disciples when Jesus announces that he's going to give Simon the name Peter or Cephas in Aramaic, uh, which means stone. It's as if the Lord is trying to force into his subliminal thinking what he wanted him to be. You know, I worked with a man whose nickname was Stony. Um, his mother gave birth to him while also suffering from a kidney stone. Uh, so his father gave him that nickname at birth and he kept it his whole life. Uh, so that was Simon's nickname, Peter, Cephas, Stony. Uh, and every time Jesus said that, Peter had to be thinking, 
I've got to be solid. I've got to be firm. I've got to be a stone. Because basically, that was not who he was. But I think the Lord gave him that name just to begin to force his thinking down a certain path. Every time the Lord wanted to speak to him, he could designate what he wanted to say by how he addressed him. If Jesus said Peter or Cephas, that communicated one message. If he said Simon, that communicated another message. Just as a general overview, it's not always consistent, but he's always called Simon in two situations. One is when it's a secular situation, such as in Mark 1 where it refers to Simon's house, or in Luke 4 where it's Simon's mother-in-law, or Luke 5.3 where it's Simon's boat, or Luke 5.10 where it refers to Simon's fishing business partners, James and John. Uh, in Acts 10.18 it says that Cornelius found their way to the house where Peter was staying, and they were asking for Simon, uh, who was called Peter, uh, who was staying there. In other words, when you just wanted to designate him in some kind of secular way as the owner of the house or boat or business partner. He's just Simon. That was his secular name. Simon is also the name that Jesus used when he was reprimanding Peter for sin. Uh, so he's secular Simon and he's sinful Simon. Uh, when the Lord wanted to focus on his sinfulness, he used the name Simon. Uh, for example, in Luke 5, Jesus sat on Peter's boat while he talked the people on the shore, and then he told Simon to put out into the water a ways and put down their nets, and Simon answers Jesus, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I'll do as you say and let down the nets. Now you, pro you, you, you realize, I hope, that under his breath he's probably mumbling and grumbling about how ridiculous it was. After all, he was a professional fisherman, and Jesus is a carpenter. Uh, they certainly knew more about fishing than he did, and so on. Um, but because of his respect for Jesus, he and James and John obeyed, and they haul up this tremendous catch of fish, and then he immediately falls down at Jesus' feet and says, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Uh, so Jesus unmasked his sinfulness, and he called him Simon. In John 21, after Peter had denied Christ and left and went back to fishing, Jesus sought him out and along with the other disciples and there's that wonderful little vignette in which Jesus restores Peter and Peter denied Jesus three times and so Jesus confronts Peter three times and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? All three times, it's Simon, Simon, Simon. He was confronting him for his sinfulness and restoring him. He's also called Simon in Mark 14 where Jesus is praying in the garden and he had Peter, James, and John wait for him and they all fall asleep. And Jesus comes back and finds them asleep and he says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? He reprimanded him for falling asleep. So Jesus called him Simon when he was being sinful. Simon is his secular identity. That was his name. But the Lord is going to turn him into a stone, a solid, firm foundation, so that by the time you come to his own epistle, 1 Peter, you find him writing to the believers saying that they as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter transitioned from being best known as Simon to being best known as Peter, the stone who taught others how to become living stones. So how do you take a guy with this kind of raw material and make him a leader?
Well, first you recognize the raw material that's present. Then you have to be willing to work with that individual with all of their flaws and faults to develop that raw material into a solid, dependable leader. Jesus saw that in Peter, and he's willing to do what had to be done to get him where he wanted him to be. And that brings us to the second point. First, the Lord built a leader by choosing the right raw material. And second, he did it by bringing about the right experiences. The right experiences. You learn most of all from experience. When I was in law enforcement, every officer, every deputy had to go through the police academy. They still do. When I went through back in ancient history, 1974, uh, it was 10 weeks long. Today, it's six months long. Uh, lots of training, lots of testing. But when an officer gets out of the academy, he doesn't just jump in a patrol car and start out on the road. First, he has to pass all five sections of the state certification exam, sort of like a lawyer having to pass the bar exam. And then he or she goes through a two to four week long in-house training at the department to learn all the rules and regulations of the agency he's working for. And then he begins the field training program in which he spends four months riding with experienced training officers who put him through all kinds of actual events and experiences to see if he or she has what it takes to be an officer or a deputy. And even after all of that training that they've gone through, there were many times that we found that when it came to handling the real life experiences out there with the field training officers, some recruits just didn't have what it took and they washed out. Uh, but every officer, every deputy will tell you that they learn more from the hands-on experience out on the street than they ever did in the police academy. And that's what Jesus did with Peter. He allowed him to have some life-changing experiences. If he's going to transform this guy, he had to bring some things to pass in his life. First of all, Jesus gave Peter some wonderful revelations. In John 6, when Jesus had given the bread of life discourse, and a lot of his followers left because they considered his teaching on the cost of discipleship too difficult, Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, you don't want to go away also, do you? And it was Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. That's an incredible statement. And it was God who had revealed those truths to Peter. Perhaps the most well-known incident took place in Matthew 16 when Peter first proclaimed, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we're told that Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. There's an exception to what I was saying before. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus was transforming this man by letting him know that God wanted to use his mouth, that God could speak through him. He gave him the experience of revelation because one day he was going to stand up on the day of Pentecost and he was going to preach the revelation of God. And someday he was going to pick up a pen and write the revelation of God. And Jesus prepared him by giving him the sense that God was moving and God was revealing his truth to and through him. And after Peter's great confession there in Matthew 6, Jesus says in verse 18, I, say, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus used a different term there. Upon the rock of your confession I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then he said, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
What's that? Jesus is saying, Peter, my friend, you're going to unlock the kingdom. How did Peter do that? Well, who was the one that preached that first great sermon on the day of Pentecost? Where 3,000 people became new members of the church. Uh, and the church was formed. Yes? What was the word for rock that Jesus used? What's the word, Frank? For rock, not stone. Petros. Petros. That's right, Petros. My, my, my brain went blank. It's a very simple word, and I went blank. Normal. Yeah. <laughs> Something at my age, it happens a lot. You're okay. Well, who did Peter <laughs> preach that sermon to on the day of Pentecost? Jews. Who was it that led the first Gentile to Christ? Peter. Peter. It was Cornelius in Acts 10. Uh, he unlocked the kingdom to the Jews. He unlocked the kingdom to the Gentiles. He was the one who opened the door. But as you know, Peter had his issues. Right there in that same chapter, Matthew 16, starting in verse 21, Peter's really feeling like a big shot now. He's just been commended by the Lord for his tremendous statement of affirmation about Jesus. The Lord has told him he's the one that's going to first unlock the kingdom to others. Peter has to be feeling like he has arrived spiritually. Well, watch what happens. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And now here comes Peter, verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now think about this. Peter has just acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's the creator of the universe. And Peter thinks he's going to straighten out Jesus' theological interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. <laughs> It seems almost unbelievable, doesn't it? But let me tell you, that's always a danger in leadership. There are many times that leaders don't seem to recognize where the limits are. Here is Peter pulling Jesus off to the side so no one else can hear and saying, Lord, this isn't going to happen to you. God the Father and I are not going to allow this. Not on my watch, not while I'm in charge. And then come those stunning words from Jesus in verse 23. He, said, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter had to be absolutely stunned. He had gone from receiving accolades from Jesus in one moment to being told that he's acting like Satan in the next. Jesus tells him, Peter, you're saying the very same thing that Satan would say. Satan doesn't want the Messiah to fulfill his mission, and you don't either. You seem to think you know God's plan, but you don't. You're thinking from a human viewpoint, not God's viewpoint. Peter was doing exactly what Satan had done in the temptation. He was trying to derail Christ from the cross, and he was just as available to Satan as he was to God. That is a great lesson to learn for a leader. When you're in a find yourself in a position where there is greater potential to be used by God, let me warn you, there's also greater potential to be used by Satan. That's a great lesson. That's why we as your elders covet your prayers on our behalf on a daily basis. 
Uh, all of us face the danger of Satan using us to bring about great harm to this church if we don't stay in day-to-day, moment-by-moment submission to the will of God while wearing the armor of God to defend against Satan's attacks. And Peter is the example of how quickly a leader can fall when he fails to keep his mind focused on what God's will is rather than what his own human will is. Yes? No, Jesus didn't see it that way. It wasn't just, I'm, I appreciate your love, Peter, for me. No, get behind me, Satan. Jesus didn't see it that way. So Jesus taught Peter by giving him revelations from God. Yes, Colleen? Well, we, most people believe Peter was a little bit older than the others, but we don't know their age. We know John was probably only about 20. 18 to 20 years old. Yeah, Peter may have been 30. Yeah. But John was very young. So, um, so Jesus taught Peter by giving him revelations from God. He taught him about opening the door to others to enter the kingdom. He taught him about the potential to be used by Satan. And then there's one more incident in which Jesus used which Jesus used to teach Peter just how weak he was. And that was in his great denial of Jesus. And once again, it comes after Peter expresses tremendous self-confidence. This guy just oozed self-confidence. Far more than he actually had. Flip over to Matthew 26, 31, and let's see what happens. Matthew 26, 31. It's the night of Jesus' betrayal. He tells the disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And then here comes Peter, verse 33. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. In other words, Lord, I'm a, not like the rest of these losers. I'm a cut above. They may all forsake you, but I never will. And so Jesus tells him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Now, you might think that Peter might pause for a moment and think about that statement and how significantly it was, particularly since it was Jesus who said it to him. After all, for three years, he has seen Jesus read people's minds, uh, perform unbelievable miracles so that Peter's convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, God in flesh. But does that shut him up? No. Look at what he says in verse 35. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And not to be left out, it says that all the disciples were saying the same thing too. They're all pledging they're willing to die for Jesus. And we all know the outcome of this. Jesus is arrested, and after a brief effort by Peter to fight the authorities, only to be rebuked by Jesus for doing such, we come to the end of the chapter and we find Jesus is now on trial in the high priest's house. And starting in verse 69 of this chapter, we read, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. 
When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You think that was a lesson? Sure was. What an experience. Peter's a broken man. But in John 21, we read about Jesus restoring and recommissioning Peter. Peter denied him those three times. So Jesus asked Peter three times if he truly loves him. And each time Peter affirms his love for the Lord. And Jesus tells him, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. And then finally, in verse 19, he tells Peter, follow me. Those were the key experiences of his life. And they led Peter to becoming the man God wanted him to be. There was a third element. To make a leader, you need the right raw material, the right experiences. Third, you need the right attitude, the right attitudes. It wasn't just experiences. Peter also had to learn certain attitudes. Now, what are the things a leader needs to know? Well, let's look at Peter and use him as our pattern. We've already seen that those who trend towards leadership tend to be confident. They tend to be eager and aggressive. They tend to be bold and outgoing. So the first attitude a leader needs to learn is submission. And so Peter, Jesus taught Peter that. Matthew 17, Jesus says, Peter, I want you to go fishing. And the first fish you catch, reach in his mouth. There will be a coin there. And use that coin to pay our taxes. Now, knowing Peter, you might have assumed that Peter wouldn't pay any attention to taxation. Uh, he would say, I'm not interested in this earthly king. I'm part of the Messiah's kingdom. Besides, the Romans are corrupt. Their tax collectors are corrupt. And so I don't care what they want from us. But Jesus taught him to be submissive to the government because of its, its power is ordained by God. And he learned that lesson. Because in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 18, he wrote this. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. In other words, he learned submission. He learned that there were institutions of God that you have to submit to. It's important for leaders to learn that, that there are limits. A second attitude that Peter needed to learn was restraint. In fact, he needed a double portion because he was so unrestrained. He was so impulsive. In John 18, he and the other disciples are in the garden and the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and Peter pulls his sword and takes a swing at the high priest's servant. And there were probably 
anywhere from 50 to 200 soldiers present, along with all the servants of the high priest. And this guy thinks he's going to stop the arrest of Jesus with a sword. And after Jesus healed Malchus' ear, he told Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? In other words, Peter, let God's plan operate. Let God take care of these matters. And Matthew 26, 52 adds that Jesus also said, all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. He's saying, Peter, you have to learn restraint. Every situation is not a life and death matter. Did Peter learn restraint? Yes, he did. First Peter, he says this, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, Peter learned that we're to follow Jesus' example. And instead of fighting back against persecution and abuse, we're to patiently entrust ourselves to God, the righteous judge. He learned restraint. Yes, Daniel. So in, uh, <coughs> the spiritual battle. Mm -hmm. At first, he wasn't fighting spiritual battle. He was about to the war, not against flesh and blood. Everything was basically almost a flesh and blood thing that he was doing. Yeah. Uh, he was, you know, told Lord, no, forbid you die before him. But after he learned that, he saw that everything was a spiritual issue, not a physical or fleshly thing. Mm -hmm. Another attitude a leader needs to learn is humility. And oh my, did Peter learn that. <laughs> Only hours after saying, I'll never leave you, everybody else may forsake you, but I'll die before mm -hmm. I forsake you, he denies the Lord three times. And he learned his lesson because in 1 Peter 5, 5, he wrote, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He learned. Sometimes leaders need to learn to develop an attitude of sacrifice. Jesus had to tell him in John 21, 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. When you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands. Someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And John commented on this statement, telling us now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. John, Jesus was saying, you're going to be a martyr, Peter. Are you ready for that? Peter wanted to know if John was going to get off the hook. So he asked, what about him? Jesus says, none of your business. And then he used an emphatic pronoun and said, you follow me. And that's the last thing, last time Jesus had to say that to Peter. He learned an attitude of willing sacrifice for the Lord. He learned it so well, he wrote this in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 16. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to us glorify God in this name. Another attitude leaders need to learn is love. Peter's certainly an example of that. You see, leaders tend to be task-oriented. 
rather than people oriented. And so consequently, they can just bowl people over in their pursuit of getting the job done. Uh, Peter needed to learn love. What were the three questions Jesus asked Peter in John 21 when he's restoring him? Yeah, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Who was it that Jesus hooked Peter up with in the first days of establishing the church? It was John, the who became known as the apostle of love. Peter got to walk around with a guy who demonstrated love all the time. So he was constantly seeing how to love. And so later on in 1 Peter 4.8, he writes, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Clearly, Peter loved, learned an attitude of love. Another attitude leaders need and Peter needed was courage. And we know Peter learned it because in Acts 4, he goes before the Sanhedrin. And he says, I don't care what you say. I'm going to preach because I will obey God, not men. <clears throat> and they said, well, you can't preach anymore. So Peter went to a prayer meeting and he prayed that God would give him more boldness and then they went out and preached some more, even greater. So Peter needed to learn submission, restraint, humility, sacrifice, love, and courage, and the Lord taught him all of those. <clears throat> How does the Lord make a leader? He takes the man with the right raw material, gives him the right experiences, and teaches him the right attitudes. In the first 12 chapters of Acts, Peter is the leader of the church. He's the one who makes the move to replace Judas with Matthias. He becomes the spokesman of the church at Pentecost. Uh, he and John healed the, the lame man. He defied the Sanhedrin. He dealt with the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. He, he dealt with Simon the magician in Samaria. He healed Annas and, and uh, raised Dorcas from the dead. He took the gospel of the Gentiles. He wrote two wonderful little epistles in which he repeated all the lessons that Jesus had taught him and passed them on to us. How did it end for him? Tradition says that cruelty came to him in his death. Tradition tells us he was crucified. But before he was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his wife. The early church historian Eusebius wrote this about that event. Quote, he stood at the foot of his wife's cross and kept repeating to her, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And after she had died, he himself was crucified and pleaded to be crucified upside down because he was unworthy to die like his Lord. End quote. So he was a leader. And we are here today because he was faithful to his calling. I believe Peter's life can be summed up by the last words that he ever wrote. They're recorded in the last verse of his last epistle, 2 Peter 3.18. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And Peter has the right to tell us how to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ because that's what he had to do. And when we submit to the Lord and his instruction to us through his word, we will certainly grow. Now, that brings me to the end of what we're saying about Peter. Now, if you thought, if, if let me just tell you now, if you thought when I first read verses 2 through 4 this morning, oh, that's easy, it's just a list of names. <laughs> we're going to talk about them briefly and we'll move on in the chapter. No, I'm going to... Uh, 
tell you we're going to go through each one of these guys. Uh, we know a lot about some and not very much about others. But we're going to go through all of them because, to be honest with you, I don't think most of you have ever studied the lives of the apostles. You've, you know their names, but you haven't studied their lives. So we're going to talk about them all. Next week, <laughs> next week, Andrew, James, and John. <laughs> because I told you we talk more about Peter than anybody else because there's, there's a whole lot more about Peter than anybody else. So, yes. It's always one of my favorite scenes because when they come up to all those soldiers come up into there in the garden and they say, who are you seeking? And he says, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Well, what he actually said, there's no he in the Greek. It's I am. And what happened to them? They all fell down, knocked them over. There was power there. Unbelievable. And then, like you say, Peter takes a swing at Malchus. He wasn't going for his ear. He was going for his head, and 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 yeah, and Peter and, and Malchus ducked and just got his ear. So, but uh, so that, that's a great scene, though. Anything else? Yes, Richard. To be fair, Jesus looked like a regular man. Mm-hmm. Nothing exterior, nothing on, on the outside of Jesus that was different from anybody else. He was a wise man. Moses performed miracles that were grand and obviously impossible. And, for example, when Jesus said, I'm going to die, Jesus said, I'm not going to let you do that, and so forth. I think that is a very natural, wrong thing, but I mean a, a natural thing. With any one of I think on any one of us, on our best day, is likely to say, I'm not going to I will die in your place. I will say, my response is that, yes, we're all like Peter. I don't, not arguing that. But Jesus had clearly manifested who he was so much that Peter himself had acknowledged who he was. And yet, instead of saying, you're God, you handle this, Peter Jumps in and says, "No, not going to happen that way." But he was not dismissed by our Lord. He he was restored in the end, became a great apostle. Yes. Would the would the, would the uh, because the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to the the apostles, so that in an effect of his human nature, just taking you know, oh yeah, he wasn't as he wasn't as Frank. When you look at the whole picture, he just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Then the Messiah says they're going to kill me. The natural response is no, because in his mind he's thinking if the Messiah dies, you're the Messiah, and you die, and I will messed up. Yeah, and that's the reason why he was. I believe that's the reason why he responded the way he did. Yeah, because in his mind he didn't he didn't understand the resurrection. He didn't know there was a resurrection. 
So Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, you're the Messiah, Son of God, and so forth. And all of a sudden, he says, I'm going to die for Peter. The natural response would be, no. No, you can't die. Given the same circumstances, was the Apostle Paul that acted any differently? The Apostle Paul would have been the one trying to kill Jesus. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Subsequent to his yeah. In other so. words, the, the, the educated man versus the uneducated man. Paul would not. I think Paul would have done the same thing. Paul would not have responded that way for the simple reason that the reason why Paul learned, Paul saw the resurrected Christ. Yeah. So he he would have known. Peter didn't have that advantage. Okay. I did. You yield your own. Okay. You notice I didn't say I graciously did. <laughs> Jim? This, uh, this I am, is that whatever that was referring to Moses and the people? Yeah. Ego and me in Greek. Ego and me in Greek, just I am. Uh, and they knew but, that these, these soldiers knew that, so when they heard that, that's why they fell down. But, yeah, it, but they were Romans. They didn't know that, but it was just the power. Of God that knocked them over. All right. Frank, close us with prayer, if you would.